the rubber meets the road when we start to talk about that white blanket, also known as snow cover, also known as snowpack in Inupiat Apun. That's where the, the global impacts come from. That's where things matter. That's where our water comes from. In the coming world, our new world, there will still be snow. There'll still be cold snow. It'll be different and there are going to be climate issues and problems we need to face. But the opportunity to sort of interact with snow, whether it's for recreation or pure interest, will still be there. Wait, say that again. The opportunity to sort of interact with snow, whether it's for recreation or pure interest, will still be there. Well, that's a relief. And when I hear it out of the mouth of an actual snow scientist rather than on cable news or some clickbaity Zucker feed, I feel a lot better. Let's talk about how the planet works. Works podcast, providing insider intel on how ski areas happen, created by and for ski area employees in the Northwest. I am so excited to finally get this one put out there. It's been recorded for a few months now, and I'm finally around to it. Today, we're going so far outside of the rope line. We are going stratospheric, atmospheric from the top of the atmosphere to the bottom of the ocean. Holy cow. And that's all because I found out about this exhibit in Portland, Oregon, at Oregon's Museum of Science and Industries, OMSI. It's called Tiny Crystals Global Impact. This museum exhibit provides interactive learning opportunities that increase visitors' understanding of snow and the vital role it plays in our global climate system and availability of water resources. Peek inside the snowpack to discover how it changes over time and the animals that make their homes there. And the humans, I might add. Walk through a snowstorm to get an up-close look at the crystals that make up different types of storms. Learn about climate adaptation by balancing resources and making trade-offs. From the wonder of snowflakes to building snow people, to unique stories from the tundra. Snow, Tiny Crystals Global Impact, offers learners ages 9 to 14, but you know what, beyond that, because I'm 41 and I loved it, and their visitor groups, the opportunity to explore all the ways this fundamental weather phenomenon impacts our lives, no matter where we live. That was a readout from this display at OMSI. It's going to be there for a couple more weeks in April. So if you can pop over to Portland or down to Portland, do that. After that, it's actually going to travel the country. It's heading to San Diego to a museum down there. It's heading to New York. It's kind of a it's going on tour. So that's really cool. The other great thing is you can see it online. You can go to ourwinterworld.org ourwinterworld.org. There's a virtual walkthrough. There's some printouts. There's some cool stuff about what this is good for older humans and younger ones. So I'm not going to actually talk too much more here because I've actually uh, recorded a bunch of what I want to say already as I was speaking with our guest today, Dr. Matthew Sturm. He's the snow ice permafrost group leader in the Geophysical Institute at the University of Alaska, and he's written extensively about the snow and the Arctic. He is the master brain, along with, you know, some definitely other collaborators with them behind this exhibit. And I'm so excited to be able to have spoken with him on the phone, which I'm going to play for you here that kind of tees up something else really cool we have going on at the conference. Then going to cut out from that phone call and 
alongside the debut, the opening day of this display at OMSI, Science Pub happened at OMSI. If you haven't been to the Empirical Theater there, it is awesome. It is just enormous. So cool. I actually got to go up into the control booth way above with big panoramic glass windows, plug in the recorder right into OMSI's feed. Uh, On the other end of that was the microphone right up under the chin of Dr. Matthew Sturm. So we have audio from this whole presentation that's kind of one of the same of the Tiny Crystals Global Impact display exhibit there at OMSI. And because it's a recording of him going through an enormous slide deck, of course, it's going to be a little hard to listen to when he's really referencing, hey, everybody look up at this picture of this thing I'm talking about. But fear not check out the show notes, check out the podcast homepage or on the app there, whatever you're listening to hit the info button, wherever your app takes that. And there'll be a link and it's going to take you on over to the PNSAA.org website, pull up the PDF of his slide deck and you can follow along too. I'm really excited to where we're going to start to take some of these things at the mountain works conference, but I'm going to shut up now. Here it is a quick phone call between myself and Dr. Matthew Sturm, as we get to know each other, get to know a little bit about this exhibit, and I get to pick his brain on tapping into a research community, which we'll be able to bring into the Mountain Works Conference. After this about seven minute phone call, you'll hear the beeps, just like a lift operator transitioning to a different operational mode. I'm a nerd. We'll play the audio file from OMSI. And then we'll get out of here. I'll see you on the other side. I'm the professor of geophysics at the University of Alaska. I'm the head of our snow ice permafrost group at this. We're an organization with about 300 people, and then we're embedded in the University of Alaska. I have been doing snow research since 1981. Um, Most of my research is Arctic and Antarctic. It's all about snow. Towards the latter third of my career, I've done a ton of outreach in villages in Alaska, native villages, written a couple books, have a new book called Field Guide to Snow for People Like You. And, you know, I've just found I like doing some other things besides writing uh, peer-reviewed papers, you know, on the hardcore science. So I've published four books and 150 articles on snow. So that's who I am. Um, I'm a kind of grizzled old guy who's spent a lot of time snowmobiling across the vast open areas of the Arctic and stuff like that. I wanted to talk with you and, and meet with you and see if there's just some synergy here because, of course, we can't be a ski area conference without talking about climate change. We've been doing yeah. it for years. Ski areas have been doing really good at adapting and, and really addressing what we can uh, in regard to climate change. Of course, it's a bigger uh, problem to solve than just this handful of 40 something ski areas but we well, definitely want to do our part yeah it's particularly relevant so we overlap dramatically there i've been a leader in the snow research community for a pretty long time so i know virtually everybody i'm in contact with a number of pretty decent there's in the pacific northwest idaho um Oregon and Washington. Uh, I haven't worked on ski area stuff, but I've worked on the economics of water, Western water and snow. So, okay. So you've got this thing on April 26th through 8th, and you're going to have some sessions on snow and climate change. Yeah. Well, I mean, I love everything you're saying right now, both in what your background is and that you, your network and, you know, and perhaps it's a, a, if, if it's not you that wants to to be part of this, maybe you can point me to some people that can. So here's my premise. Here's something that I think we need to talk about. And like I said, the whole talking about uh, the changes in, in global weirding and what it's doing to the snow. But right. in the Pacific Northwest, I take maybe my a base point, weather moves west to east. Pretty simple earth sciences, right? Right. Yeah, and you get your river, atmospheric river type thing. Yeah, that stuff. And that is the Pacific Ocean. We are the Pacific Northwest Ski Areas Association. The Pacific Ocean touches the bottom of the mountains that we ski on. The Pacific Ocean touches the workforce that has summertime. And maybe you're commercial fishing, or maybe you're doing science on a vessel, or maybe you're a river raft guide, any of those sorts of things. And I want to to hone in on ocean health 
as it relates to snowpack. The genesis of our water cycle. You know, the industry side, sure, we have all the other climate stuff that we're we're doing protect our winners and there's a, there's a whole bunch of uh, stakeholders yeah. in this but i think we're unique i think that the pacific northwest ski areas uh, we can talk about ocean health because that's a real thing more than we have been and more than the industry has been and since it's our front yard we should be this should be our zone we should really be thinking about this and i admire that that's a good topic and it's it's broader than just strictly am i gonna have good snow and get a lot of skiers so i I think that's good too great so that's kind of the premise we're gathering this conversation this whole day conference the mountain works conference um is you know there's other topics we'll be talking about for sure workforce uh just the business of skiing everything else we got to talk about career progression we're going through a pretty big generational shift uh, in mm-hmm. the industry right now. So we're going to be talking about those things with really stakeholders and people from up and down the, the hierarchy chain, if you will, at ski areas. But we need to get climate discussions integrated into this throughout. And so that's what I'm looking for. And when I heard about OMSI and this snow thing, I said, wait a minute, here is probably a pretty good opportunity to capture a lot of minds uh, who are in this space. And and figure out what that means. And so that's really all I'm, I'm trying to do here is let's see what that means. I think it's, yeah, I think it's great. That's exactly what I was hoping with the OMSI exhibit. I mean, there, there are two, two things that were in my mind four years ago when I wrote the proposal with Vicki Coates from OMSI was just snow is cool, right? Let's open people's eyes to it. Hmm. Just the wonderment part. But the second was most people how many people in la la actually know that they drink snow water probably very few right Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. most people who come to your ski areas probably if they hit a nice snow day don't think about that that's a changing parameter right they just think we're having a great time on that day so we have these multiple constituencies so they so the exhibit's got a lot of places are like well what do you think about this right we did not focus in any way on skiing, um, but we have focused on changing snow. Um, so that's what's in the exhibit now. So then thinking about the conference, and like I said, I'm trying to gather the minds that know, that all the smart people that know the things, the people that have studied the things, uh, at least. And I need to get the proper people uh, as a panel on stage. And yeah. we, we okay, need, so-, so we need to talk about, the couple of things we need to talk about is is one, you know, snow at large, right up your alley. And the things that you say that the snow scientist community you're, you're involved with anyway, it's so that's right up your alley. But when I think just uh, contemporarily this fall, even so much hype in the media, so many stories about ski resorts are dead by 2050 because the snow is no longer going to exist at those elevations. Uh, so there's there's several articles that kind of allude to that and, and some studies that may or may not have been extrapolated uh, properly from for journalists to get to that conclusion. But it's something we need to talk about. So we need to talk about really what is the global health of the snowpack uh, and regionally. Sure, we need to make it regional as well. So that's one thing of just the snow, because that's what we do in ski. Right. But right. like I mentioned earlier, we don't just ski. We are ski patrollers and ski instructors and operators and food service workers. And every everybody that has a seasonal job as part of a ski area has the opportunity and does go off in the summertime and work other jobs that are connected to the water. So yeah. I'm interested in what that Pacific Ocean is doing in terms of ocean acidification and temperatures and how that affects that summer employment for that person who yeah, wants good. to make a career out of working on the water, be it frozen or be it flowing. And, yeah. and uh, that yeah, that's what we need. We need to start talking about ocean health in terms more than just La Nina and El Nino. That's great that we have that. And it's not, those aren't strange terms to anybody in the ski industry to know what La Nina and El Nino means maybe for their region and how that's going to affect their immediate winter. But it sure is just a tiny measure of what else is going on in the community that really wants to know about ocean temperatures. All right. Now let's go to the science pub at OMSI. You can access the slide deck that Dr. Matthew Sturm is referencing here. If you just look at those show notes.
Good evening. I'm delighted to be in Portland at um, the opening of this exhibit, which I don't know if you got a chance to see it. You certainly go Tiny Crystals, Global Impact, or my subtitle is Why Snow Matters to You. And the tiny part is this. These are called diamond dust crystals, and I'm going to get asked later whether there are ever two snowflakes that are alike. Just take a look at the crystal, and when we get that question, which is invariably asked, maybe you can answer it as well. The, we call these tiny crystals because if that's the point of a needle, that's about how big they are. So that's the tiny crystals part. Um, obviously bigger snowflakes, but we can build up a snow cover from the tiniest things. The global impact comes right out of this. At peak of the winter, the northern hemisphere gets covered with about 48 million square kilometers of snow, about 12 billion acres. And that snow is very white, very bright, and reflects sun. So the global impact, in addition to water, which I'll talk about, is that we have this enormous white reflector. And let's see, yeah, there we go. And of course it waxes and wanes with the season because ours is a very seasonal planet with a 23 degree tilt, but each year it melts away in the summer, but it comes back in winter. So the impact from that snow covering the earth is profound. Um, and of course it's changing. But when I was thinking about giving the talk, I thought, well, yeah, I really wanted to talk, sort of make it a little more personal. So let me start sort of how my thinking was going as I put the talk together. Because it was about a year ago, a little more than a year ago, I was in Fairbanks, which is where I live. Um, and my wife and I really wanted to visit family in New Mexico. Um, we have two dogs, one who's very elderly. You can see the dog in the Betsy here. That's Minnick back there. Minnick is a, a Nupiat word for freezing mist. That's Abe and my wife, Betsy. And uh, we're in the depths of the pandemic and also the depths of winter. And it wasn't really clear how we were going to get to New Mexico pre-vaccines safely. So we packed up the truck, the pop-up camper, and we headed to family. Um, and it's a long drive from where I live to get to New Mexico. And it took us through a lot of neat places and everything. For those of you from Oregon or from the Pacific Northwest, you should probably recognize some of this. That's the John Day fossil beds and, and Cooley Dam, both of which are part of the Columbia River system. And in fact, without any real intent, uh, we're a peripatetic tour of the Columbia River system. That's our route. Both red was down to New Mexico, we, and then we dropped into California. Blue was back up to Alaska. Basically, we spent an awful lot of time in the Columbia River Basin, right? And you're wondering, well, what does this have to do with snow? Um, we weren't actually trying to stay in the Columbia River Basin. We were actually indulging something I had always wanted to do. When I was 17 years old, I was stationed with a Coast Guard in Seattle. And I hitchhiked west to Dry Falls. This is probably some of you have been there. And I didn't understand it at all. Here was this enormous falls, but there was no water. What, what's up with that, right? And of course, later then I began to read that the largest floods on Earth had, been, had come down that way and had broken away from the Columbia near Grand Coulee, um, run through the coulees, and went over Dry Falls. So we indulged ourselves about tracking the Missoula floods. That's what these were called because they came out of Lake Missoula. Uh, this is Steamboat Rock, not too far from the Grand Coulee, but a little bit south of the Columbia River. Um, there's a lot of reservoirs that have been dammed up there. And th that water is something we should notice. And I think my favorite, for those who ever want to go on a tour, was when we got pretty much south near Oregon. These are the Drumheller Channels. And there, the enormous floods, uh, they spread out. They still were eroding like crazy, but they spread out. And uh, whoops, I get turned around. This is worth noticing too, all these nice green circles. So we also, um, like any good tourist, 
the trees near my house are black spruce, they're about as thick as my arm. So for Fairbanks since coming down to the Oregon coast, uh, these trees are amazing. And this, which I believe is the world's largest Port Orford cedar was truly astounding. But of course, you can't really escape winter in the Northern Hemisphere or the Northern Tier. It caught us back up eventually. Um, but you can see my wife smiling. We, we actually like winter. But what does this have to do with snow, right? Well, it's really simple. 65%. The Columbia River flows at somewhere between 5,000 and 8,000 cubic meters a second, which is enormous. 65% of that started its life as snowmelt water, 65%. Some of the basins, as I'll try and show you, that number is as high as 70%. Um, and so that's the first reason you might want to care about snow. Because I would, I would maintain that the Columbia River system is at the lifeblood. It's like the pumping blood system of the Pacific Northwest. And two-thirds of it is snowmelt water. A little bit difficult to see, so let me lead you through it. Quite simply, if it's green, yellow, orange, or red, and that means half of the precipitation in that location is falling as snow, okay? So when you look at the world this way, all of a sudden snow becomes important. There's an awful lot of snow, because um, those are the places in the world where more snow than rain falls. This is, there's a lot of detail here. I'm gonna step away just for a second. Um, this is a really interesting paper, but it's pretty technical. But there are two things to notice here when we think about snowmelt water. This one here, 53% of the total runoff in a western snowmelt originates as snowmelt, despite it being only 37% of the precipitation. Well, what does that mean? How is it possible that we get more water out of snow? Well, what it means is snow is a more efficient runoff source than rain. Rain soaks in, rain goes elsewhere. So first off, not only is snow important, um, but it's more efficient to get, a, to get the water out. The second is 70% of the total runoff by different measures. If it's blue, and most of it is the fraction is coming as snow, 80% if it's dark blue. And you notice the blue is all in the mountains. The mountains of the western U.S., the mountains of the Himalayas, the Karakoram, virtually all mountain chains of the world have been called the water towers for the people because it's the free reservoirs. That's where our precipitation comes. People tend to live on the margins, and we need that water desperately. The current models suggest red is where it's going to change for the worse. What these models are is they assume certain assumptions about uh, CO2 warming and stuff, and then they run the model. So they usually try a couple different recipes. Um, this is a moderate one, a more aggressive one, a lot more red. You can actually go on this website and find out how much snow is coming in your basin and how much it's worth. There's a basin, I think it's called the Upper Columbia. It tells us 72% of that basin comes to snow water. You can go to any basin you want and do the same. The second thing with this website is you can click on this. You can find out what your local water costs are for acre feet. Um, 300 is pretty mild still. If you're in California, or if you have a drought, it could be up as much as 900, but let's just put 300. And now let's pick a basin, $208 million. That's how much we're gonna lose due to changing snow conditions in the next decade with a certain discount rate. So I would encourage everybody, if you're wondering why is snow important to, your, to you, um, to check out this website and see kind of for your own self, where do you live and how much snow melt do you have? So it's a good website. You can see it'll bring up this sort of stuff. Why is it so valuable? Well, there are a lot of uses um, hydropower, I think for everybody in Oregon, that's probably a no-brainer. Irrigation water, huge amount of recreation, and of course, a fishery. I looked around, I was trying to find out 
I've done it for the exhibit. We did the Colorado Basin. I think we have a pretty good handle on that. And there have been some excellent economic analyses. Um, I was looking for the actual numbers because nothing speaks as loud as money when you want to tell something, somebody something's important. This report seems to have been put together, from what I can tell, by organizations that really want to improve the fisheries on the Columbia. But I think their analysis could well be good. So show me the money. Um, what's it worth in the Pacific Northwest or the Columbia River Basin? $3 billion in hydropower, close to $5 billion in recreational. And just Oregon and Washington alone um, is about $10 billion for irrigated crops. Um, and if we had the other Columbia River Basin states, then $21 billion. What else is val the snow valuable to you for? We all know it's got this bright, it's bright and it reflects sunlight. Um, what's that worth? It's really hard to evaluate it, but in fact, if we didn't have that cooling, we would have to refrigerate more. So you can do a, a sort of back of the envelope calculation, 500 billion there. How about this? Outdoor recreation, 30, $35 billion in snowmobiles. 330 million skier visits worldwide, um, billions of dollars there. Green Douglas fir where the waters cut through. Outer wild mountains and canyons ship blue. Canadian Northwest to the ocean so blue. It's roll on, Columbia, roll on. Roll on, Columbia, roll on. I love that song growing up. I, I love the verse on click attack, snake, and the Willamette. Anyway, I, it, Woody Guthrie couldn't have said it better, to run the factories and water the land. So there's lots of reasons to care about snow, but it's absolutely fundamental to our well-being. That's the reason to care, even if you hate snow. But that's not what actually motivates me. What motivates me is just pure curiosity. Money, I'm not that driven by money. So I, I want to just go cosmic now. Why is there snow? Anybody ever think about that? Why is there snow? It is a cosmic serendipity. We live on a planet that is neither too hot nor too cold, and that's why we have snow. It's a very unusual planet. It's probably not unique in the universe, but it's probably pretty rare. Remember when you're in grade school, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, right? Uh, let's look at um, Venus there. It's 480 degrees C at the surface of the Earth. So if you pour a cup of water, manage to do it on Venus, it would vaporize into steam right away. So that's not a great place to look for snow, nor water for that matter. How about Mars? Well, we're not going to vaporize it, and we might have an ice cap right? We do have an ice cap, but liquid water is going to be hard to find. So, and there's Earth. There's Earth, 15 degrees C. I actually don't believe that number. I think that's an interesting number, but it's probably, I don't know how you estimate the mean average temperature of the entire Earth. I know how I decided I'd go about it. I just thought, well, you know, in the deepest part of the ocean, the very bottom of the ocean, that must be a temperature that's sort of about average for Earth. So in the abysmal deeps, way down there, 4,000 meters down, it's about 2 degrees C. So I'm going to take that as my number. Earth, the, the, the mean temperature of Earth is about 2 degrees C, which is only 2 degrees above the freezing point, and we have a very seasonal planet. So that means we oscillate back and forth, which means on Earth, as in so few other places in our entire solar universe, the three phases of water can coexist, and they often do. And I want everybody to think about that the next time you're drinking a glass of water with ice in it. This is not something you can do on Pluto or in the Andromeda system. And it's all because of this. There's an oxygen and two hydrogens, and they make up what? H2O, water. And they have a very interesting angle. And that angle is forced 
literally by the nature of matter from the Big Bang on. Ice and water are unbelievably superlative materials. There's nothing else like them on Earth. Actually, we can say that there's nothing else like them in the universe because this would be universal. The latent heat of melting, this is the amount of energy I would have to put into gold to melt it. It's 67 kilojoules per kilogram. So that, just think about, that's what it would take to take solid gold and make it liquid. We can look at lead. Look at, look at ice to water. My goodness, look at that. It's enormous. How do, if you didn't, if I didn't put this up, how would you know that? Well, you would know it in that the snow in your mountains here melts slowly because it takes a tremendous amount of energy to change its phase back to liquid water. It also means on a cold night when a puddle freezes, only the top freezes for the same reason. Enormous differences. The specific heat, that's how much it just it takes to raise the temperature of something, just one degree. Once again, the water, whoops, the water substance is superlative. Insulation value. You can spend a fortune buying fiberglass bats to insulate your home, or you can let nature make depth for it and get the same number. Unbelievably good insulator. We can also, though, change it with wind, so it's a very variable substance depending about what we do, but I think, can think of very few other things in nature, maybe very, very good mosses, that can do this. And here, the granddaddy of them all and the one that's most important in terms of thinking about climate, reflecting of sunlight. Albedo's, if the, the Latin root is white and 90%. 90% of what comes in goes back out, which is one of the reasons we need snow so badly. A couple other things I hope you take away from the lecture that very few people realize. Um, is super cools. Most people don't realize this. I'll tell just a brief story. Lou Shapiro, I was a grad student. We were doing an experiment. We had a walk-in freezer, and we had a king-size bed, little uh, sort of bathtub full of exceptionally pure water, and the tub had been very, very carefully cleaned. We chilled that down, and we brought it down to zero, and then we brought it down to minus five, and then we brought it down to minus 10. And at minus 10, it was still liquid, the entire thing. We opened the door of the freezer, not intending to do this. And somewhere in the roof ceiling of the freezer, there was a small speck of frost, which we knocked off. And it landed in the supercooled water, which froze solid, 30 centimeters thick, size of a bed, in seconds. It was unbelievable to watch. But this is true that you can Water can be supercooled down to minus 40, but the reverse is not true. It cannot be, ice cannot be superheated. At zero, it melts. The second thing, of course, we all know because we see rust, it's a universal solvent, also mixes with salt. And the last thing is the QLL, the quasi-liquid-like layer. There's a most elegant experiment. For those who've been through the exhibit, we, we kind of honor a pioneer of snow called Nakaya. Um, he did a lot of experiments. This one I love. He had two tiny balls of ice. He chilled them down to about minus seven or eight, so they were well frozen. He had hung them from rabbit hair, brought them together, and then they stuck. Okay, well, that does, maybe they just froze together, right? Then he used a very fine mechanism to start pulling the hairs to see if he could pull them apart, and it took a fair bit of force, but the clincher was before they came apart, they rotated. You can't freeze together and rotate. And this told him and many other investigators that even on cold ice, there's a very fine layer called a QLL, a liquid-like layer, that is water-like, even down to very low temperatures. Sounds very esoteric, doesn't it? Why would I care? Turns out skiing and ice skating You've probably learned that it's pressure melting that lets him skate so fast, right? No. Or maybe you learned that it was friction that lets him skate so fast. No. It's the liquid-like layer. And anybody who's managed to ski at minus 5C or lower has already proved that to themselves because neither the friction 
nor the pressure could possibly create enough slide for your skis. So even though you don't know about the, may have not have known about the QLL, you actually know about what it does. The same is true when it's slightly below freezing and you have ice on your roads in Portland. Well, let's get it to snow. It's a lot harder than you think. Every time I teach this to my class, I sort of marvel at like, wow, yeah, it is hard. It all happens here, and several things have to happen to make it snow. It's really surprising. Because there's the problem. I just told you that stuff doesn't want to freeze. So you got to do something to get it to freeze. And there are two ways we can do that. The hard way and the easy way. The hard way is called homogeneous nucleation. Since it can super cool, water can super cool down to minus 40, that means we have to chill it below that. Large thunderheads get that get up 30, 40,000 feet, they get that cold. So we can get homogeneous nucleation in the coldest of clouds. And it can even happen in the tropics if they tower up there. But that's not really, that accounts for very little of the precipitation, both rain and snow on Earth. So the other way is heterogeneous. Heterogeneous just means mixed. It means there's something else in there. Junk. That's the way I think of it. So what's the junk? Well, a lot of different things. It turns out our atmosphere is pretty dirty. So there's lots of things you can put in there. Clays, dust, surprisingly biogenic material, bacteria, viruses. Um, I don't think COVID yet. <laughs> I hope not. Um, but other viruses have been found. All you really need is something that's about the right size and shape for the structure of ice and is insoluble, and you need to get it up there. Um, this is the basis of cloud seeding. Uh, for a long time, I thought cloud seeding had gone out of vogue. It turns out Idaho Power is spending millions of dollars a year seeding clouds over in the Stanley Basin. So that's very much going on. They use silver iodide as the agent. Here's where it comes from. That's a picture of LA. So if you're wondering, well, where do we get this stuff in our atmosphere to nucleate ice crystals? Plenty there. Dust storms, biomass burning, ocean bubble bursts, all sorts of ways. And so how does it work? A little bit of clay is here. It nucleates a tiny little ice crystal out of water vapor in the cloud. And through one of these cosmic things, it turns out the vapor pressure over ice is slightly lower than that over water droplets. That's a, well, all that means is that if I have an ice crystal next to a tiny water droplet, the water droplet will give up molecules to the ice crystal. This will grow, this will shrink. It's called the Wegener-Bergeron-Findelson the effect. It turns out it's incredibly important to make it precipitate, and the difference isn't much, but what happens? The little ice crystal grows and grows and grows until it's large enough to survive in the cloud, while meanwhile the little water droplets, fewer and fewer of them. Just to give you an idea of size, the condensation nuclei are two ten thousandths of a millimeter. The little droplets we're talking about are 100 times bigger, and snowflakes or rain droplets are 100 times bigger than that. 100 times 100 is 10,000, but the volume of these things goes to the third power. So if you're good at math, 10,000 to the third power is 10 to the 12th. Got that? Yeah, which is, and then you have to factor a four. So it's 400 billion times bigger in terms of volume from here to here. That's a lot of growth you have to do to get a raindrop out of a One other thing we need is what's called the dry adiabatic lapse rate. Again, it's pretty fancy. I like physics. This, physicists and geophysicists, I, we like to put this in there, right? I don't even know what that is, right? So I'll put that there, and then this must be really important, right? What this describes is that if you drive up to Mount Hood right now, it'll be colder there. <laughs> How much colder? It turns out I, I prefer to do this in degrees per 100 meters. It's one degree per 100 meters, one degree C. That's the dry adiabatic lapse rate. And that just means, yes, it's colder when we go up. But what does that have to do with making it snow? Take a parcel of air here, push it up, and we'll change its saturation, and we'll change its, the temperature it's in, and we'll get it to condense.
Last thing we need to make some, get a snowflake out of the bottom of a cloud is what's called Stokes settling. Gravity's pulling it down. Updrafts in the cloud are sending it up. Somehow this has got to beat that. And when that finally happens, that crystal or raindrop will finally fall out. So here it is. This is the factory. We'll put some temperatures. This one's a good cloud. It's actually just cold enough for homogeneous nucleation at the top. Here are the updrafts. We're cycling this stuff. Think more washing machine than cloud. They're growing, but they're not big enough. They're, too, they're still too light. The updraft catches them, and they keep growing. All those little water ones are going away. And we got a couple other things. If we can rhyme it, rhyming is just when the snow crystal falls through supercooled water droplets, gets on there, looks kind of diseased, but it makes it heavier, falls better. Aggregation, when we have heavy snowfalls, snowfalls bump it, snow crystals bump into each other, they collect. Now we have a big clump, it'll fall better. So that's the crystal factory. Amazing, isn't it? That's what it takes to get it to snow. And often that's the precessor to get it to rain, which I've heard it occasionally does here. At the end of the talk, I'm gonna talk about snow watching. So I'll just name a few of these. This is a hollow column. This is stellar dendrite. Um, this is a bullet rosette, capped column, needle crystal, arrowhead twin. Another capped column. These are our beautiful um, diamond dust capped column there, and a hexagonal plate. And there, most of these are Ken Liebrich, who you you mentioned. Um, they're just beautiful, beautiful forms. How do we get that? How do you get such many forms? It turns out like so many good design features. We work two basic ideas over and over again, just intersecting them. One is we grow out the um, a axes and we get tabular hexagonal plates. The other is we grow up out the, a, the C axes, and we get columnar crystals. And if we do that back and forth and back and forth, we can produce most of those forms with only one other rule, which is it's good, it's good conditions to grow off the point of a crystal. It's bad off of an edge. So we grow points. And it turns out with those three rules, nature builds the most elaborate of crystals. Why symmetrical though? Well, all of those arms are tumbling through that washing machine of the cloud, and they're being exposed to exactly the same temperature and saturation or, pre or moisture. So as long as we tumble them, then all the arms tend to grow. The other thing to keep in mind is that in fact, most of them are not symmetrical. Those are the ones that people photograph. Nobody photographs the lame ones. 99% um, are not this nice. And so Ken and the other uh, snowflake photographers, they go after that. We're back to Nakaya. He, um, he spent his life studying snow crystals. He, he was a PhD student in, in nuclear physics in um, and in Japan in the 1920s, he just got assigned a place. They sent him to Hokkaido. It's very snowy there, but there was no physics apparatus. So he did the only thing he could, study snow. He was trying to work out why we saw so many forms. And then with time, why there were such abrupt transitions at minus 3, minus 10, and minus 20. And this is still a difficult problem today uh, to understand that. Let's take a look at how that diagram works. So this just happened. That's the back of my house. That's how much snow we have in Fairbanks. Unfortunately, in the middle of that storm, we also got freezing rain. Um, but this was a wonderful example of that morphological diagram. So here's the storm is starting. And we have a number of Fairbanks in here. So this will look familiar. It's, we were definitely destined to have a white Christmas. Here we are. Here's the temperatures slowly rising, but at, at first we didn't really notice that, and it's starting to snow like crazy. And then all of a sudden, at some point after Christmas, unfortunately the temperature went right through the roof and it started to rain. And this is, this is what was happening as far as the Nakaya morphology. Very early in the storm, just read this is like really humid. A lot of humidity, less humidity. Early in the storm we have 
tons of moisture in the air. We can grow dendrites like crazy. And it's about minus 15. With time, we're starting to exhaust that moisture. And we begin to change the form eventually to this form. But then it's starting to warm, which is dragging us this way to this form, this form, and this form. That may look hypothetical, but let's just look. There we go. The arrow shows where we are in the storm. I'm taking these pictures on my deck with Olympus TG5. Storm's gotten even more aggressive, so this stellar dendrite is quite a bit more elaborate than the first, and all of a sudden we change. We're into basically hexagonal plates. Storm progresses more. We're into hollow columns, a bit more into needles, and then we all started crying because it started to rain. We're gonna move into the last, and then I'm gonna sort of try and wrap up. Okay, those are wonderful. I think everybody loves, we'll call it snow crystal watching, but that's not where the rubber meets the road. The rubber meets the road when we start to talk about that white blanket, also known as snow cover, also known as snowpack in Inupiat Apun. That's where the, the global impacts come from. That's where things matter. That's where our water comes from. And it's different. Up in the cloud, remember, we have all sorts of moisture, and maybe at the top of the cloud, it's minus 40. On the ground, we're not going to be there. We're going to have a different temperature regime. So those crystals that fell out of the cloud, so very beautiful, mostly last less than 24 hours. And in fact, when people ask me, does it matter what it snows, I just say, no, it matters how much it snows, because the actual crystal forms just don't last. They are affected by three really main elements. One, quite strictly, is the wind. We'll talk about that last. We can pulverize snow. The second, well, I'll come back to the middle one. Heat's pretty clear. We can either have a thaw or rain. We can put heat in the snow, and of course, that's going to do a lot of changing to the snow. Temperature gradient, people are used to this, um, but they don't think about it normally, which is it's warm inside, cold outside. That forces moisture from the warm to the cold. Um, all, all of our world has temperature gradients, and that's the third element that drives moisture and so changes snow as well. But the first thing that happens, of course, is they land in those, they, they look fragile, of course, and they are. They begin to break apart. Because there's one other thing that happens. Ice crystals abhor a very sharp point or radius. Um, a water molecule that's part of the ice lattice right there just has almost no incentive to stay there and will waft off. So very sharp points decay very quickly, even at very low temperatures due to the Kelvin effect. Whereas if you bring up a temperature gradient effect, then we rebuild sharp edges. So let me give you the 30-second tutorial on snow metamorphism. First pathway, let's see, is this one. Pretty simple. And unfortunately, this is the Pacific Northwest. We start with nice snow, and pretty soon we have melt grains, melt grain clusters, and eventually a slush. We call that wet snow metamorphism, and probably doesn't need a lot of explanation. This one. It's driven by temperature gradients, but it's interesting. Instead of creating very structured, it works also towards rounded grains, but without melting. It's often called equilibrium growth. It's dry snow, equilibrium growth. This one, this is what I did my PhD on, depth four. It creates these beautiful forms. Um, and that happens when we have a very strong gradient across the snow. And the last is the easiest to understand. If we pound snow with wind, we'll get something different. Now, this is a little out of order, but I, 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 another famous snow scientist did this experiment. It's very worth understanding. His name was Henri Bader. He was Swiss. And he captured a beautiful snowflake. It was quite cold. Captured it between two glass plates. Held it very steady temperature. Um, I think it was about minus five. And in 57 days, this is what he had. No melting, just the instabilities in the crystal structure itself. So this is, this is what we call equilibrium metamorphism. OK, so let's just look at a few of these crystals, because I think, to me, they're as interesting as the ones that fall out of a cloud. 
These are melt grain clusters. This is your corn snow. This is what corn snow looks like early in the day before the bonds between the grains thaw out from the heat of the day and then it's nice ball bearing snow to ski on. But early in the morning, it's kind of a frozen mass. That's, those are called melt grain clusters or corn snow. This is what slush looks like. I actually like slush. Slush is pretty cool stuff. These are, there's a very special shape to these. And when you get a slush from a technical standpoint, these are at zero degrees and this water's at zero degrees. And that creates those shapes. The other type of snow, the gradient snows, they're driven in this way. Particularly in the world I live in, we might have minus five here. In fact, right now, I would guess we have about minus five in Fairbanks at the bottom and it was minus 30 at the top. That's a strong, strong gradient, and it drives stuff up, and it, you can see it's granular snow. When we have that gradient, we begin to do what was happening in the cloud. We begin to get fastening. This is called solid-type fastening, beautiful sort of structures, and then we get even more elaborate forms. This is called a depth core cup, and then even more elaborate forms. And then finally, that's windblown snow. Um, that was taken in Ukiavik. Um, uh, these are called dolphins. Some people call these dolphins. The wind's blowing this way. And I, I, this is when I know I'm a little different than a lot of people. I actually love being out in those conditions because there's so much to see. And that's what it produces, percussively broken up grains. Okay, so what's next for snow? Where are we? What's gonna happen with this cosmic material? Um, the best way I can tell you to think about it is to start here. Um, we routinely classify snow into these types of snow covers. And the sketches are sort of give you um, an idea of how they're put together. So here we go, Mount Hood snow, maritime snow. The black are icy layers, all melt grain clusters. It's a deep snow. Um, my world here, the boreal farce, it's all depth hoar, right? So, Pretty much all seasonal snow in the world can be classified into these, even snow on sea ice, and to some extent, snow on glaciers. So this is it. These are the types of snow that exist. They're called the climate classes. And this is how we would map them, okay? What's the best way to think of what's gonna happen in our world as climate change continues, and which I think we really need to be thinking about, it's, this is not gonna change back. It's like sliding everything south. And what happens when you slide south is that snow that used to be cold is gonna be a bit warmer. Snow that used to just come as snow might come with more rain on it and so on. So the easiest way to think about our evolving world is that you'll have to go further and further north or higher and higher into the mountain to find the same snow you used to find there. I, I, I just liken it to a sliding process. And of course, that means in, in a lot of the world, we're gonna see more of this rain, rain on snow. You'll see a lot of papers and a lot of sort of um, scary stuff over rain on snow. Some of it's probably real, some of it's just, I think, a little bit over the top still. The real ramifications can be seen here. Uh, the Rutgers Snow Lab has been tracking snow since the 1970s, and they use satellites. And what you can see, this is, this is what snow covered. Um, I should have used February, because I think that's February. But anyway, January 30th, 2022. Um, so this wasn't too long ago. This is how much of the world was snow covered. It's the dead of winter. And if you look here, there's not much change. But it turns out that's not the one we want to know. Because in January, there just isn't also all that much sun either. So if we're worrying about snow as a reflector of sunlight, we really need to worry about this one, April. In April, the sun has come back with gangbusters, and there's less of it, um, of course, than there was in January. But the really sobering piece is right here. We're seeing dramatic changes in what I would call spring snow extent. And in fact, let me look here. Yeah, 30, um, we've lost 4 million square kilometers in the last um, 50 years. 
That's a very bad trend on the one thing that helps keep our planet cool. So there's very great cause for concern um, of what that trend will do and how it'll feed back to the climate. But I don't want to end on that note. I, a few years ago, a writer from Homer, woman who had written a award-winning book about the Pacific Northwest, she went with us on one of her trips and she talked about writing a book about the demise of snow. I, I don't think of it that way. Um, in the coming world, our new world, there will still be snow. There'll still be cold snow. It'll be different, but, and, and there are gonna be climate issues and problems we need to face. But the opportunity to sort of interact with snow, whether it's for recreation or pure interest, will still be there. So I want to end with something uh, that has been in my mind, which is there's bird watching. There aren't many people involved in snow watching, and that's a puzzle to me because it's a particularly easy hobby and can be very uh, rewarding, whether you live here where it rains a lot or you know, but where you have to go into the mountains. So I kind of just show this person um, looking at a snow crystal. I realized, I drew this some years ago, I realized, yeah, that's not a very good idea because it's gonna melt on your hand, right? I should have drawn a mitten. But anyway, you, you get the idea. Snow watching is incredibly easy these days. Um, we produce uh, kits for kids um, in villages and stuff. We found these are clip-on, um, microscopes for your cell phone that are quite good actually and cost somewhere between 10 and 16 dollars with that and a little piece of black velvet you too can be a photographer of snow crystals you just you have to have it with you when you get an opportunity you can go old school and i still have my uh, hand lens you can cast snow it's quite easy um, with a few glass slides a straw from a broom um, and a workable fixative that you've allowed to get cold, you can spray slides and make casts. Or you can go a little more up school with a $300 camera that has a microscope mode. So snow watching, if you will, or snow crystal watching is pretty cool. And it doesn't just have to be what falls from the sky. I love doing snow pits, as anybody who's ever been with me knows. Um, this is a snow pit, I dig a hole. If you're an aval person who skis in the mountains, you do this for safety, but there's also a lot to see, including crystal. I actually just wrote this book about a year ago. Um, it's come out, uh, much of what I've talked about today, and particularly how one might snow watch or exp explanations that are in the book. And um, it, if, if you get interested, it's probably the right thing because there's not a lot of real low-hanging fruit for people. In addition, we're starting to do more outreach. People should get a hold of me. You can find me um, a number of ways um, to talk about some of the stuff we're doing in Alaska. And I think with that, I'm just gonna end and say thank you. was fun. Definitely easier to follow along with if you had clicked on the show notes and pulled up the PDF of the slide deck that Dr. Matthew Stern was going over, but still fun to listen to by itself. Also in that slide deck is a URL that I've actually pulled out and it's in the show notes too. It's one of the maybe cooler URLs I've ever heard. Porkloin.github.io slash B-A-S-I-N capital S-N-O-W slash is this super cool website that's an interactive tool telling you how much of your water comes from snow and what it is worth in dollars. It's a map of the whole western portion of the United States by water basin. You can click on it. There's different little filters and things that you can manipulate to show you uh, just just so much information about the watershed, including its economic impact. Holy cow. So definitely hit the show notes for that. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so the next episode pops up on your feed. Pretty helpful if you get on there. Leave us some reviews. Tell a coworker this is a thing. 
And speaking of co-workers, if you work at a ski area in the Northwest, you can be part of this. This podcast is yours. Hit me up, podcast at pnsaa.org or text 877-533-5520. I do hope you're making plans to attend the Mountain Works Conference April 26th through the 28th in Bend, Oregon. On the 27th, the Mountain Works Assembly. We will be having a pretty cool panel that includes Dr. Sarah Myrie, Gwen Howitt from Mount Baker, Nick Silas from Oregon State, he's a climatologist, and myself talking about the Pacific Ocean and the snow and the water workforce. I'm really excited about it. See you next time when we continue to talk about how the mountain works. Foggle. <laughs> this is a hollow column. This is stellar dendrite. Um, this is a bullet rosette, capped column, needle crystal, arrowhead twin, another capped column. These are our beautiful um, diamond dust.